Welcome to the Fintech One-on-One Podcast. This is your host, Peter Renton, Chairman and Co-Founder of Lended Fintech. Today's episode is sponsored by Lended Fintech USA, the world's largest fintech event dedicated to lending and digital banking. Lender's flagship event is happening online this year on April 27 to 29, with the possibility of an exclusive VIP in-person component. The verdict is in on Lender's 2020 event that was held online, with many people saying it was the best virtual event they had ever attended. Lender is setting the bar even higher in 2021. So join the fintech community at Lended Fintech USA, where you will meet the people who matter, learn from the experts, and get business done. Sign up today at lendit.com slash USA. Now, if you're wondering what happened to the Lend Academy podcast, it is still here. This is it, actually. We've had a rebrand. Fintech one-on-one is what the podcast will be called from now on. The reason we changed the name is that it better reflects what we are trying to do here. These are conversations, one-on-one conversations with fintech leaders. We have moved beyond the lending space, but that is not to say lending is no longer important. On the contrary, we'll continue to have leaders in fintech lending on the show regularly. But fintech one-on-one better encapsulates what we are trying to do as we have many conversations with leaders that are outside of lending, such as this one today. Today on the show, I'm delighted to welcome Lee Phillips. She is the president and CEO of Save a Life. Now, Save a Life are a national nonprofit. They're focused on helping people build financial security, and they do that in, in really interesting ways. They focus on a lot on gamification, ways to sort of you know, gamify savings with their members. That's, uh, that's proven to be quite effective. We get into that in some depth. Uh, we also talk about what is the difference between people who are successful and not successful at really embracing their programs. We talk about the impact of the pandemic and how the members of Save a Life have been impacted much more than the typical person. Uh, we talk about how they interface with the for-profit community and they have uh, have some pretty interesting programs there and much more. It was a fascinating interview. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the podcast, Lee. Thanks, Peter. It's so great to be with you today. Okay. I would like to get started by just get starting with um, some background. You've got a, you've had a, a pretty interesting career looking at your LinkedIn profile, certainly not typical of the people I have on the show. Um, so why don't you give us some of the highlights, uh, particularly before you got to save a life? Well, I'm glad to be a, to be an untypical guest. That's always fun to have uh, different different voices on the show. So I am, um, gosh, I don't know what's what's interesting to tell you. I started my my career working in in nonprofits in fundraising, and because someone once told me that if you ever want a career in nonprofits, you should learn how to raise money, and then you'll always have a job, and that tends to be generally true. Uh, but then I actually connected with uh, the San Francisco treasurer. He was recently appointed and uh, was looking for someone to be his assistant. So I thought that sounded like an interesting job in City Hall at the time. I actually wanted to be a writer and I thought I could support my writing career with my day job. That was kind of my my thinking. But what I wasn't anticipating was that when I took that job in City Hall that um, some very passionate advocates would come along with some terrific ideas around how to bank the unbanked, how to maximize tax credits, and, you know, the city treasurer managing everybody's money uh, for the city and county seemed like a logical place to launch some of those programs. So that's really how I got involved in this type of financial empowerment work. 
um, and went on uh, to launch the San Francisco Office of Financial Empowerment for the San Francisco city government and uh, did a lot of kind of first of their kind programs there, again, focusing on financial systems, financial equality, and, and really how government can step in and ensure a more equitable financial system. So that was how I started out um, in this field and was very lucky to, to have that experience and meet so many wonderful colleagues along the way. Mm-hmm. So then, so then, what attracted you um, to save a life? Because uh, it's been it's been a few years now, but if you remember what back to to those early days. So I've been CEO of uh, Save a Life for about five years, um, but the organisation itself has been around for twenty actually since two thousand and one. So we'll see our twenty year anniversary this year. And the organisation was originally created under the name Earn and um, was one of the best known nonprofits focused on helping low income families to save and build assets. So the kind of theory being that income alone isn't enough to move people out of poverty. It's really about wealth accumulation. So helping people invest in those assets that become, you know, intergenerational, like homes that really help uh, shore up families like businesses, contribute to the economy, and of course, education. So that was kind of what the organization was focused on at the time. But I'm sure you'll remember, you know, a few years ago, some data really started to emerge that's showing that liquidity and emergency savings was a really key part to family financial stability, right? Mm -hmm. So if you don't have money in the bank to withstand a financial emergency, or if you don't have money in the bank to withstand an interruption in income, then your ability to stay on track towards long-term goals was going to be very impacted. So um, the organization decided to go down this path and looking at how they could leverage technology for scale. And in my former role at the city, I worked with Earn, now Save Alive, very closely. So for me personally, there was a, a couple of things that really prompted me to, to want to t- take on this, this new role. First was really understanding that kind of $500 problem, right? The fact that almost half of America doesn't have $500 in the bank. That's a pretty deep and deeply entrenched problem and a very widespread indicator of, um, of financial instability. And so solving that problem and understanding how not being able to cover an emergency expense, let's say like a, um, a traffic ticket or something like that, really can create this downward spiral for families, right? So the ticket that becomes fines, that becomes a lost driver's license, that becomes a lost job, that becomes an eviction. Mm-hmm. So that kind of a trajectory, unfortunately, it was pretty common. So that was one issue I was really interested in. The second issue was really looking at the emergence of financial technology and how we were running the risk, and I think still are, of not building inclusive technology. And I know that's probably a topic that comes up on your on your show quite often. So, you know, living here, I live in San Francisco, is kind of surrounded by um, a lot of innovation and, and obviously leadership in tech. But where were the voices of underrepresented people in these types of conversations, particularly as relates to finance? So I've been lucky enough to be on the advisory board of a a for-profit startup called Level Money that went on to be acquired by Capital One. And I don't know anything really much about uh, technology, Peter, at least not at the time. I've learned a few things over the years. But what I was able to understand is how some of this financial technology really could uh, move the needle for low-income families but only if it was going to be specifically applied to the problems that they faced. And I felt that nonprofits really had a shot at doing that, right? Because you don't have the same tensions around obviously having to to have uh, profitability and these other things. You can really design for the problem at hand. 
So that was kind of the second thing. And then the third, just as um, um, a woman and a, and a leader, uh, the opportunity to step up and, and be the CEO and, and um, was something that I felt that I needed to challenge myself to do. So those were kind of the, the three things that led me to, to leave a job I loved, working for local government and um, step into nonprofit and tech, both of which were new to me at the time. Right, right. So uh, that's really interesting. I, I want to go back to, to something you just said there. And I, you said something along the lines, you know, the financial technology companies, the fintech companies aren't really uh, addressing this population, the people that really have uh, have trouble, you know, making ends meet. And, you know, obviously I've had some many people on the show that are trying to do that. Where Where is fintech and how is fintech falling short? It's a great question. And I think we still have a lot to learn. And, you know, as well in the nonprofit kind of fintech sector, which I hope to see grow um, over over the years. So the first is really understanding the types of problems that people face and how many of those problems are individual and how many of them and what of those problems are systemic. Right. So as a field, and I would say actually the nonprofit field also has focused too much on individual action and too much on individual behavior, right? So it's about what you do as consumer and less so on those kind of prevailing other kind of systemic issues. So one example I can use is uh, income volatility. So that's been an issue that's kind of come up um, over the years that if, if you're looking at someone's income over a year, um, an annual household income, maybe you're seeing a number that doesn't look that bad, $35,000, $40,000 a year. But if that money has come into your bank account very inconsistently, you know, $5,000 one month, $1,000 the next, then your ability to plan and stay on track towards long-term goals uh, and your ability to avoid debt is really impacted. Mm-hmm. So organizations like Saver Life are able to look at that and say, okay, well, some of the rules around automatic payments and paying yourself first and the things that we hear a lot in the finance sector aren't necessarily going to be applied well to people who oftentimes don't have enough money consistently to cover monthly expenses and may not may have maybe need to accelerate their savings during certain times of year, like tax time, for example, as opposed to focusing on some of these other um, ways of saving. The second thing, which I think is a, a challenge that we also face at Saver Life, is that for all of its innovation, financial technology is still largely built on mainstream banking. Uh-huh. So in order to participate in financial technology, you have to have a bank account, right? And you generally have to have a bank account that works well with financial technology. And that tends to be a bank account at a major bank. Um, And so I think that we're kind of building these innovations, oftentimes around payments, around savings, around lending, whatever it may be. But if you're not already in that system, it's really hard for you to access it. So, you know, probably you or I could go online right now and open bank accounts all over the place, right, Um, in five minutes if we wanted to, because we're already in that system, right? Like um, we're recognized, know your customer, like all that stuff, like people know who we are. If you've been excluded from banking or maybe you don't have that kind of banking history, it's going to be really hard for you to to get started with some of these innovations. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, at Saver Life, we do see obviously a lot of folks who are banked and are able to to use those products um, effectively. We also see a lot of people using alternatives. So we see a lot of people using things like PayPal as a savings account, you know, which is which is kind of surprising in you know in some ways. And then we see a lot of people who are unbanked completely or maybe looking at prepaid cards and other things. And from a tech perspective, the connectivity to that those types of accounts is just not the same. So I think that there's an, a number of things that really need to be solved, but they will only be solved if we actually put that as the end goal, right? Like how can financial technology drive inclusion? 
not, you know, well, we'll do it if we can, but that really should be the end goal so that we don't create a digital financial divide. Right. And we certainly have the tools today. And I know that there, there, there are fintech companies out there that are trying to address the population that you've just talked about there. There's, there's some new new companies that, are, that I, I read about them almost on a weekly basis, it feels like these days, try, launching to either tackle a particular minority or, or a particular segment that's, that, that's disadvantaged. But, but I want to get, I wanna get um, into what you offer, your program itself, and how, I mean, I, you've got a membership, you're, you're a membership organisation, I believe. So, so tell us a little bit about what you provide your members and, and how you encourage them to save. So our goal at Saver Life really is to make saving money rewarding, engaging and fun, and also to match what we do to the, the practicalities of people's lives, as I was just describing. So Saver Life at its core is uh, rooted in uh, prize-based savings, present savings, match savings. So a lot of the ideas that came from things like match savings and other demonstrations of nonprofits over the years that we know to be effective, we're really trying to apply that at scale. So um, you essentially join Saver Life as a member. If you link your savings account or your PayPal account or whatever you have, checking account to save, we monitor net gains and savings and then you can um, win cash prizes, in some cases receive cash matches, and so on and so forth. We do different challenges and pledges throughout the year. So right now our focus is really on tax time, right? Like tax time is the, the moment when so many low-income families have this large infusion of cash. It's a pivotal moment. And so in that case, we start talking to people before they get those refunds. So we start saying, okay, you know this money is coming make a commitment to yourself to save. How much of your refund are you planning to save? And we have prizes to encourage people to pledge to save, to actually save, and so on and so forth. And we actually see quite remarkable progress when we do those types of things. So we have about over 80% of people who pledge to save their refund actually go on and do so, which is pretty significant. So again, it's kind of looking at like, what are the, the triggers? What are the moments in time where people maybe have uh, more uh, liquidity in their finances and they can save? We also encourage people to save regularly and in small amounts. So maybe you can only save $5 a week. That's great. Save $5 a week. You know, you can still win prizes and, and have other incentives for doing that. Um, the second thing we focus on, which we're actually increasingly finding is very important uh, for, our, for our members is a, a sense of shared community. So um, you can access all sorts of different resources on the Saver Life website. So that includes financial content, the ability to ask an expert, content that's really well tailored towards people, um, our membership, and I can tell you a little bit about, about who they are, um, but also the ability to share with each other, to share in forums, to have discussions with other Saver Life members, to share your tips. And we really focus on a very uplifting brand, you know, because a lot of um, finance, personal finance can be kind of depressing or scary. So we really focus on celebrating people's wins and also understanding people's unique circumstances. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So are these prizes, are they, are they random? Are they when you hit a certain level, everyone gets a prize? I mean, what, how does it work? It's mostly random. So it kind of depends on the, the challenge that we're running. So we have um, a scratch card game. So, you know, you can earn points on the platform for engaging with financial content, for saving regularly, and you can redeem those um, those points to play for prizes. Uh, we do uh, savings challenges. So we found that helping people say get above $100 in savings is actually a really important benchmark. So we have a lot of challenges geared around, can you reach $100 in savings within 30 days? And if so, you're entered in uh, to win. 
That's another popular one we do. Same with the tax time pledges. We have story competitions, sharing your stories. Those are a little more like you're selected, you know, based on mm-hmm. um, on the stories and things that you've submitted. So there's a bunch of different ways. Our, our goal is to keep it really uh, engaging for folks and and hope that we have a positive impact. Right, right. And so is this, I mean, you don't have an app, right? Is this, is this like a, just a web-based, you know, is this all, all, all a web-based system? Yeah, right now it's a web-based system. Uh, hopefully having that app roll out this year. Oh, okay. Great. Great. So uh, I want to go back to sort of a, a bigger question here because I was reading something when I was doing the research for this interview. You wrote something, I think it might have been a couple of years ago, but you said that you know people's problems will not be solved by rounding up spare change or smoothing out paychecks. So what is, I mean, is, is what is the way to solving, you know, these the, the basically the systemic problems that we have in our society when it comes to, you know, particularly you know, financial inequality? Well, that definitely sounds like something I would say. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, I, you know, here's the, the way that we see it. Improving your financial life, um, experiencing financial stability, and ultimately economic mobility, right? That, that's what we're looking for. We're looking for people to have the opportunity to save, to invest in themselves and their families in the ways that are meaningful to them, right? To be able to send your kid to college, to be able to live in the neighborhood you want to live in, to be able to start the business that you've dreamed of starting. And we know that there's a great deal of inequality within those systems. And um, and we've seen that really highlighted in the last 12 months, right? As we look at the impact of the, the disparate impact, economic impact of the pandemic. So what we believe is that you can achieve financial stability and economic mobility through a combination of individual action. So allowing people to take action today. And that's where savings money really comes into play or, you know, there's other personal things you can do. So helping people to take those individual actions, that's extremely important. But the other side of that really then is understanding and addressing those systemic barriers, right? So you're not going to, you know, make your coffee at home and suddenly no longer be in poverty. And those are the types of messages that we put out there that it's all about individuals, right? Like there's a, you've made bad choices or maybe, you know, like there's a lot of judging, there's a lot of blame, a lot of shame um, that goes into this. And so I think the example you used about income smoothing is, a, is an interesting one. So is it great that maybe people can match, um, can cover unexpected expenses or loss of income with an app that allows them to advance their own pay or whatever the case may be. Yeah, and it seems like that works really well for some people and that's a great innovation. But at the same time, if you're not looking at the question of why do so many people need that product, then you're kind of missing the point, right? And as nonprofit, as consumer advocates, that's where we really need to focus a lot of our energy. So then you're looking at what are the the rules around fair scheduling for low-wage workers, right? Like, how, um, what are the types of policy changes we can enact that reduce that type of volatility? Because that's what really gets people into trouble, right? Like you don't have consistency in your income. So therefore you have to go into debt uh, to bridge those gaps. And then next month, guess what? You're worse off because in addition to having volatility in your income, you're in, in a worse position than you were in before. Uh-huh. And so for us, we're really, and this is where I think financial technology can play a, a huge role because you have so much data we connect to people's you know, financial accounts to run our program. So that means we have a lot of insights into their financial lives. So again, as a nonprofit and as consumer advocates, we can look at the impact of policy on people's actual financial lives and bank accounts, right? Like you can look and see, for example, uh, over the course of the last year, when stimulus payments go out from the federal government, 
who gets those payments? What stabilizing impact do they have on, on families? Do we see increases in savings? Do we see repayment of debt? We see increased spending on, on food. So you can actually look at and measure the impact of these things. And that's where I, you know our work is really centered is, is where those things intersect, right? So where can you support people in taking action for themselves? But also where are the issues where you know, you're just not gonna get ahead if you're paying more than 50% of your income in housing costs, for example, or your consumer debt is above a certain level. And those are, are largely systemic issues. Mm-hmm. Right. So I, I want to talk about something that really what, what prompted this whole interview was someone from your office reached out to me with uh, with survey results you did, and it really piqued my interest because we've heard this year, and I've had people on the show say that, you know, this year credit card balances went down, loan defaults were not nearly as bad as expected. In fact, many, many ended up, many lenders had had some of had their best year in, in many years in 2020 as people were were paying down their debt, but I, it, it struck me when when you know that, that what hasn't been the case uniformly across the economy and what you know you shared was the survey you did showed actually that not that the population that you're focused on it wasn't a good it wasn't uh, a good news for them the stimulus checks may not have had the impact they had in other populations so maybe you can. Just take us through some of the results of that of that survey that really show the impact of the pandemic on, on the people you serve. Let me tell you a little bit about, about those people and, and who they are. So um, sometime, I think this week, we'll hit our 500,000th member. And 82% of our members are women, about 60% are people of color. Average incomes between twenty-five dollars and $35,000 a year. Most of our members are mothers with dependent children in uh, female-headed households and who don't have college degree. So that's a little bit about the population that distributed across the U.S. Mm-hmm. So when you're looking at who is economically impacted most by this pandemic, it's this, these are the people, right? Like low-income working women of color with dependent children. And there's been a lot out there recently in the media, obviously, about the uh, impact of, of the pandemic on women, but particularly on, on low-income women. So you're looking at people who... Almost 60% of our client population Peter, experienced unemployment during 2020 for some period of time, many of them for, for many months, and there's uh, multiple reasons for that. So when the pandemic hit, it also hit very suddenly, right? So unlike other recessions that maybe a little have that impact a little more gradually, one day you were working and the next day you were not, and you have no idea when you were going to return. And that kind of sudden loss of income for millions of people in this country was devastating. And so you saw organizations like ours, like Save Our Life and many others, raise money and step in and actually send people cash. And that was one of the first things that nonprofits with a fintech platform were able to do. Um, and some of our for-profit uh, friends also did some of this work as well. So they tip, you know, we stepped in and said, okay, people have just lost all of their income. We know they don't have much of a savings cushion. They got kids to feed and rent to pay. Like, what can we do? So we sent out cash. And we recognized that the government would hopefully then kick into gear and start providing some relief. So as you mentioned, I'm also having those conversations with people um, who are saying, wow, it's amazing. The savings rate has gone up to whatever it is now, 16%. Consumer debt's been gone down, but not for everybody. And I think that's really important that if you look at those numbers in the aggregate, maybe you're seeing a situation like, yeah, unemployment's high, but maybe it's not that high. But for some people, some groups, it's 60%. And for other groups, it's you know, 5% or less. 
So I think that the disparity is really what we're looking at and why it's so important that you don't just look at everyone as a whole, right? That you look at these different populations and the impact. So what we've seen is, a, is interesting. So we definitely saw people still saving because people know it's important to do that. There's so much uncertainty right now. So when stimulus checks did hit, we did see um, savings, but we also obviously see people, see people covering basic necessities. Then over the summer, you had the impact of unemployment insurance that was covering for people. But it's around August to December that you really start to see things get shaky for folks, right? So you see these increased withdrawals from savings and increased debt. I think uh, credit card debt's up about 44% at the end of last year compared to the year prior for our client population. So again, um, that one side of it has been, uh, on the income side, has been devastating. The second thing that we've been looking at is expenses, right? So for a lot of us, we're maybe spending less, right? We're not going on vacation, we're not eating out, we're not buying our coffee, we're not doing all those things. But for lower income folks without a lot of discretionary income, well, you know, they weren't really doing those things anyway to begin with. And they also have uh, increased expenses. And a lot of that's been the cost of food, uh, the cost of utilities, internet access, and school supplies. So you're looking at um, food in particular has been a major driver. So families who may have had their kids in school receiving school meals or childcare receiving meals that way now suddenly have mouths to feed, you know, all day long. Um, same with utilities that maybe you would have spent most of your day out of the home. And if you live somewhere where it's really cold, then you know you've seen those things increase. So it's been a double whammy. And then the third piece of that, as I mentioned, is the impact of school closures. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we've heard a lot at the end of last year um, when they were debating around um, renewing unemployment insurance and other things. Well, will that be, will that discourage people from returning to work? I said, well, here's something that will discourage you from returning to work, not having childcare for your five-year-old. Right. Um, right. And so the kind of disconnect between policymaking and the reality of people's lives was actually quite you know, alarming to us. Um, so that's why I've been really focused. Again, technology gives you so much information and so much data. How can we use that data to really inform the conversation and to really look at, you know, this is what people are really experiencing. We know we're about to put a report out in a couple of weeks about uh, the impact of uh, the pandemic on parents whose kids are not able to go to school. Huge earning loss. And at the same time, increase in expenses. So, you know, those are the types of things that through technology you can really measure, right? Like you can look at where people are spending their money. You can look at what happens when they get government relief. You can look at what happens with their income and you can help inform policymakers about how to, to build better systems. And I'd love to see more fintechs uh, getting involved in that. Right, right, for sure. So then then speaking of that, like the, the for-profit fintechs, uh, which obviously that, that's, uh, that's the biggest part of this vertical, shall we say, I'd love to know, are you working with some of the fintechs directly or how do you interface with the, with the for-profit fintech community? Uh, we are actually. Some of our most successful partnerships are, are with other fintechs and there's a lot of them that we really um, admire and um, a lot of leaders in that space who are genuinely trying to, to help and do the right thing. So one partnership that's very valuable to us is with Propel and their Fresh EPT app. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if they've been on your, on your show. And they really, to me, exemplify kind of best in class about how this can all work together, right? So they solved a problem for folks that was really needed to be solved, right? Not knowing how much money you have to spend on food. They've been very creative in helping people use that technology to, to budget their food. 
And they've also stepped up in times of crisis to really help folks. So we have a partnership with Propel where we run ads for Saver Life through that platform and it drives a huge amount of traffic. And it's very valuable uh, to us because it's a similar target demographic of who we're trying to reach, not just in terms of you know, income and, and challenges saving money, but also in terms of tech savvy, right? So it's a population of folks who are already using technology. And the, that type of referral partnership really helps us because it allows people to take action in the moment, right? You can see something, an ad for Saver Life and be like, oh, I'm going to do that now. As opposed to, you know, while I'm waiting here, you know, at the grocery store, I'm on the bus, whatever, maybe I'll just sign up and see what this is all about. As opposed to maybe if you've seen a, a flyer or a billboard or something you plan on doing later. Um, so we've had a partnership with them. Uh, we worked with another app called Steady, which helps people connect to gig employment. That was really successful. We referred some of our members to Steady um, if they're looking for uh, opportunity to increase their, their income and some more money. And then also offered that opportunity for Steady members to join Saver Life. And that was a, a partnership that the Financial Health Network supported. Uh, so we could ex- experiment with uh, cross referrals and prizes as a way to incentivize those cross referrals. So if you signed up for both platforms, you were able to uh, be eligible to win a prize. And um, actually, I'll tell you, Peter, that we we ran that experiment with them uh, at the end of last year. And there was a $5,000 grand prize for someone who had signed up and used both platforms successfully. And we contacted the woman who had won as a woman in, in Central California. And um, I told her that she'd won this $5,000 prize from, from Saver Life and Steady. And um, she told us that she had just been served an eviction notice. That week. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So she was able to stay in her home. That, that, that's, that's, yeah. that's great. Right. It was two weeks before Christmas. She had two young kids and oh my um, God. was able to stay in her home. Was able to stay in her home. So that was, wow. that was a great ending. Yeah, yeah. that really is. I can't, you can't get a much better ending than that. Okay. So, so we're almost out of time, but a couple of things I really want to get to. What is the difference of the people that are on your platform? You said you got, you're coming up to 500,000. I'm sure there are some that are doing, that, that are really engaging with you well and some that are not. And I mean, what is the difference between those people that are successful on your platform and those that are not? That's a really great question. And it's definitely one that we're always endeavoring to, to find out more about, right? So it's a combination of things. So we know that people who engage with the platform, uh, the content, um, play the, the prizes and the challenges, tend to, to save money and, um, you know, obviously at higher rates than those who don't. Uh, we also awarded a $10,000 prize at the end of last year to a super saver of the year as someone who had done all of the things and it increased their savings significantly. So I think there's a couple of things. I mean, I think there's, um, you know, how ready someone is to save, uh, how much, in, you know, flexibility they have in their finances. Do you even have $5 a week or something, you know, to save? Whether or not you have access to a savings account, we definitely see people who have dedicated savings accounts to move money into, as opposed to trying to grow a balance in their checking account, are more successful. Uh, so there's definitely some um, issues there that we're exploring. Uh, we did a fun experiment as well around goal setting and text messaging. So we t- tried out a couple of different personas around different types of text messages. And uh, we had three, three personas. One was Mother Teresa, who had a very encouraging tone. Uh, one was Mr. T, who um, not everyone who works for me knows who that is because um, they're not as old as me. But uh, he, as you can imagine, had a little more of a direct tone. Yes. And then the third was uh, Michelle Obama, who had more of an empowering tone, like, oh, we can do this, let's prove them wrong. 
Turns out that uh, Mother Teresa had a negative impact on savings. Um, Mr. T was neutral, but Michelle Obama increased people's savings rates by 34%. Now, just to be clear, this was not the real Michelle Obama. Yes, right. Our interpretation of what Michelle Obama would tell you if she was going to give you savings advice, but a 34% increase in savings compared to the other groups. So we're very into kind of experimenting with those types of, of things to see how they move the needle. But as we've been been talking about, Peter, I think the next phase for us is to really understand those systemic barriers, right? So 64% of people somewhere in there who join Save Life have less than $100 in savings when they join. So what we're really looking to do is to move people up that trajectory to move them from less than 100 to more than 100 to more than 250 to more than 500. That's kind of what we're focused on. And so we need to understand, obviously, behaviorally, what moves people up. So empowering text message from Michelle Obama, signing up for um, a savings account, automatic savings, uh, playing the games, challenges, all that stuff is relevant. Uh, But on the systemic side, we also need to understand you could do all of those things, but you know, if your debt is too high or your income is too volatile or your housing cost burden is too great, it's not going to help you much, right? So how can we then attack this from both sides, both individually, this is what makes people successful, let's do more of that, that's great. Uh, But then systemically, here are where the real issues are. And that's what we're hoping to to continue learning about and solve. Right, right. Okay, I also want to know then, how are you funded? Who's, who is backing you? Uh, You do have a bunch of you have foundations. You said you used to. You learned how to raise money. So, tell us about uh, how you're how you're operating the money that, that you're uh, operating with. So, Save Our Life is a five hundred one c three. We're a nonprofit organization. So, we are uh, largely funded from corporate and foundation philanthropy. So, some of our big funders include uh, MetLife Foundation, Prudential, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, Capital One, um, Intuit. There's you know a lot of folks on. On that side, um, some family foundations, some individual giving. Um, so that's kind of what makes up the bulk of our of our revenue. And you know, there's a great interest in in these types of issues right now. Obviously, we know that um, financial health is kind of a an underpinning issue, right? For everything else, it, it indicates your you know physical health, your ability to have stable housing, how well kids do in school, whether or not you can go to college. You may, it's kind of a the bedrock of so many things. We're also, of course, seeing, as we should, a great increase in interest in closing the racial wealth gap and the gender wealth gap. So specifically focusing on these, again, systemic issues and how they've impacted people uh, now for, for many years. And, and let's actually address them, let's actually solve them. So that's where we kind of see this interest um, from philanthropy, which has been great. Uh, we do also have a, a program called Saver Life Solutions that offers our technology to employers, credit unions, other nonprofits, and people who want to run uh, match savings programs, prizing savings programs, and use our technology. So we do have some earned revenue that comes in from from there. Great, great. Okay, so last question. I mean, I feel like someone like yourself has to be uh, an optimist uh, dealing with, uh, you know, challenging, these these, these are really challenging problems, and many people uh, are struggling like never before. So then I'd like to kind of get a sense of, how optimistic, like, are you optimistic about the future? I presume that's a yes, but what what do you see changing that is really going to bring, you know, to, to have this problem? So when we do a survey in five years' time or 10 years' time, there's not going to be 60% of the population that, can, uh, that, that can't make a $400 emergency payment. Yeah, you know, I was interviewed recently about... Um 
about leadership. And I think one of the questions was, what's a trait that you need to, to be a leader in this field? And optimism was, I think, was actually what I said, because um, these are big, big challenges, right? And they're deeply entrenched challenges. And sometimes it can feel that you're not making a lot of progress. But I'll tell you what, what gives me optimism is the resilience and and the optimism of the people who use our platform. I mean, like mm-hmm. that's where we draw on every day. I mean, they're the, the heroes of this story, it's not us. Um, and so seeing what people do, and especially, you know, the mothers on our platform and the lengths that people go to, to improve their situations, to improve their family's situations, to take care of their kids, especially in the last 12 months, we have some great stories coming out. And by great, I mean, because they demonstrate, you know, resilience about this, in the impact of the pandemic on, on women or on working mothers and just, you know, people changing jobs multiple times and, you know, people being relentless and trying to get resources for their families. And, and it, that's what I think the real, where the real optimism comes from. You know, I think that where I see some change is really, again, and we'll always be pushing on this, that it is about individual action and collective action, right? So how can we both support people individually, but then also make sure that their opinions and their needs are represented in policy conversations um, and that those people themselves are mobilized to go out there and, and demand more from our leaders. And I think that that's where we're actually seeing momentum now. Obviously, there's a new administration. There's a lot of policy ideas on the table that are things that uh, we've been interested in or fighting for for a, a long time. And so I think the more that we can come together and say, you know what, we need to put our values first. We need, if we want an inclusive financial system, we need to build a financial, uh, an inclusive financial system, right? We can't mm-hmm. just say we want one. And that involves everybody in the ecosystem. It involves uh, nonprofits, it involves mainstream banks, it involves financial technology, it involves regulators. So really like, what is the world we're trying to create? And that's what work backwards from there. And yeah, and I, I think that we can, we can do it. I've also been serving on the Consumer Advisory Board of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, a lot of energy again, coming out of that at that agency and uh, how we can really make sure that we're putting people first. And I think we've learned a lot over the last 12 months that hopefully we will no longer ignore. Right. Well, let's, let's hope so. Lee, it's been, it's been great having you on the show. Uh, I've learned a lot and I think, uh, I think the listeners will as well. I, you know, it's a, it's a noble cause. I'm glad there are people like you out there sort of fighting this fight because it's, it's really important and I can see that, you know, you're making a difference. So thank, thanks, thanks very much for coming on, Lee. Thanks so much for having me and for uh, highlighting these important issues. Okay. See ya. You know, I'm also optimistic about uh, the plight of these these underserved consumers, these the consumers that are struggling today. I feel like we have, you know, we have programs like what Save a Life is doing. We have a lot of the fintech companies that are now focusing on this segment of the market, much more so than than even three or four years ago. And we see many different programs, a lot of them that offer automation, that offer really inexpensive financing and, uh, you know, really trying to get away from the, the, the predatory lending type products. We see automation happening with savings. I feel like there's lots of different ways that fintechs and nonprofits are attacking this problem. So I'm hopeful that that really this decade we will make a real dent in the plight of these uh, of these people who have been struggling historically. Anyway, on that note, I will sign off. I very much appreciate you listening and I'll catch you next time. Bye. 
Today's episode was sponsored by Lended Fintech USA, the world's largest fintech event dedicated to lending and digital banking. Lended's flagship event is happening online this year on April 27 to 29, with the possibility of an exclusive VIP in-person component. The verdict is in on Lender's 2020 event that was held online, with many people saying it was the best virtual event they had ever attended. Lendit is setting the bar even higher in 2021. So join the fintech community at Lendit Fintech USA, where you will meet the people who matter, learn from the experts, and get business done. Sign up today at lendit.com slash USA.